In your worship folder, you have a, a set of notes for today, and we're just going to do one chapter in Isaiah today, so this will be a really light Sunday, you know. <laughs> Used to be we'd do five verses and you'd worried we'd go too long, but now we go two or three chapters at a time and we're moving. But in your notes, at the top of your notes um, is a question that I want you to think about. If you have a pen and want to write something down, you're welcome to. What's a difficulty you're dealing with? Could be a circumstance, could be a person, could be anything. But what is a difficulty you're dealing with? Just write that down. If you don't want to write it down, just think about it. Put it in your mind and picture it on the page right there. You know that as we're, we're going through Isaiah, we're dealing with letters now, messages written to a people who are in exile, written ahead of time, 150 years early because of God's grace and love to a people in exile as a way of encouragement. And so it's, it's good for us to think, through, okay, what's something I deal with? And, and we may not have to deal with the same things, but we can learn by how God dealt with Judah and how God dealt with the children of Israel here. We can learn how he wants to deal with us. So you have that on your page. And oftentimes those circumstances and those difficulties are very large in our mind. They're very huge. We're having to live with it every day. It's overwhelming sometimes. But today, I want to eclipse what you have there. I wanted to start with that. But my goal today is eclipse what you have there by seeing how great our God is and how incredible the work he's doing is. And then to see our circumstances and our difficulties in light of that greatness and what God is doing. J.B. Phillips in his book, Your God is Too Small, wrote this. Many men and women today are living often with inner dissatisfaction, without any faith in God at all. This is not because they are particularly wicked or selfish, or as the old-fashioned world would say, godless. Now, I might disagree with him a little bit on that statement. But it's interesting where he goes with it. But because they have not found with their adult minds a God big enough to account for life, big enough to fit in with the new scientific age, big enough to command their highest admiration and respect and consequently their willing cooperation. See, oftentimes we do struggle with a God that's just too small, don't we? A God that we put in a box, a God that we don't think can handle our circumstances, a God that we don't know if we can trust, a God that seems small compared to the trouble and the trials we're in. Sometimes we don't believe in a God that's big enough because we don't like the, the consequences of that kind of belief. If I believe in a, in a magnificent, almighty God that has His plans and that His plans are bigger than my circumstances, then one of the consequences of that belief is that His way is better than my way. Right? And we don't like that. My kids don't like that. I don't like that. You don't like that. But if we're to understand and come under God's sovereignty if we're to understand what He has for us in His Word, what He's doing with Israel, what He wants to do with our lives, we serve a majestic God. He is sovereign over all, including what you wrote at the top of your page. And so that's where we're going today. That's sort of the whole sermon in a nutshell, the whole chapter in a nutshell. But we're going to explore it and, and, and dig into it a little bit more. One of the things I think of is sometimes it's not so much that we don't get what we want, but sometimes it's that we get what we don't want. But we need to see a bigger picture that God is doing something. Turn with me to Isaiah 45. 
Isaiah chapter 45. If you don't have a Bible with you, there's a black one under a seat around you. Please grab that. Follow along in God's Word. Isaiah chapter 45. We're going to pick up again these messages that are written to encourage a people. And I think we'll find that today, as we expand our view of God, as we remind ourselves of who God is, that the encouragement is incredible. The encouragement to keep going, but the encouragement to see purpose in what God is doing. Isaiah 45, and, and really we're just going to cover two, two points today. And the chapters in two halves, verses 1 through 13, and then 14 through 25. And the first half is the idea that God is working. He is using any and all circumstances for His work. And so we're going to explore that, and Isaiah is going to explore that with the people of God. And the second half is, okay, what's his work? His work is to rescue and bring salvation to a fallen, rebellious world. And that's what we have an opportunity to be part of. If if we'd stop being so focused on our own circumstances and, and our own troubles and our own frustrations, we could see what God is doing in the world. So let's start with the first half and... I'd like to read verses 1 through, through 8 first as a whole, and, and then we'll, we'll break that down a little bit. But as I read, I want you to listen for repeated phrases. As you study poetry especially, but Isaiah, look for phrases that are repeated. And we're going to see a number of them here. We're going to see a number of them repeated from chapters 44 and 43. But listen. Listen in here. Thus says Yahweh. And again, when you see Lord in all caps there, that's God's covenant name, his faithful name, Yahweh. Thus says Yahweh to his appointed, to Cyrus, whose right hand I have grasped to subdue the nations before him and to loose the belt of kings, to open doors before him that gates may not be closed. I will go before you and level the exalted places. I will break in pieces the doors of bronze and cut through the bars of iron. I will give you the treasures of darkness and the hordes in secret places that you may know that it is I, Yahweh, the God of Israel, who call you by your name for the sake of my servant Jacob and Israel, my chosen. I call you by your name. I name you, though you do not know me. I am Yahweh. There is no other. Besides me, there is no God. I equip you, though you do not know me that people may know from the rising of the sun from the west that there is none beside me. I am Yahweh. There is no other. I form light and create darkness. I make well-being, create calamity. I am Yahweh who does all these things. Shower, O heavens, from above and let the clouds rain down righteousness. Let the earth open that salvation and righteousness may bear fruit. Let the earth cause them both to sprout. I am Yahweh. I, Yahweh, have created it. What did you hear repeated? Oh, woe is me. Look at my circle. What, what was repeated? I am God. I am Yahweh. Besides me, there is no other. The first point that you have in your notes is God uses any and all circumstances to do His work. To do His work. 
I originally had it in my notes to do his work in our lives. And as I'm studying and reading it and talking about that, it's not about us, it's about him. I'm like, well, actually, it's bigger than just what God's trying to do in my life, right? It's what God is trying to do for his glory, for his purposes. And so I think it's appropriate to say God uses all circumstances to do his work. And it's the same thing we see in Job and the same thing we see in in Scripture. The focus here isn't on me. It's not on my trials. And it's not on why is God doing this. It's on who is God. Because if we can capture who God is, if we can get our heads around how great and majestic and perfect and holy and sovereign and righteous He is, then the questions fall away. The questions drop because we know that He is trustworthy. So it's who, not why. And how can I glorify Him and be part of what He's doing? Breaking it out, we see just a number of things about God's sovereign work, about His plans that are helpful that we see here. The first we see in the first couple of verses, God uses strange people or circumstances that we don't expect. God uses strange people or circumstances that we don't expect. Look at those two verses again. Thus says the Lord, or thus says Yahweh, to his anointed, to Cyrus. Now that right there is like put on the brakes, screech to a halt. What did you just say? Some of you moms have probably done that with kids in your car, right? You hear something and screech and pull over and say, what did you just say? That's a little bit about how the people would have responded here. See, Cyrus was not a a king from the line of David. Cyrus was the guy that came in with the Medo-Persian Empire and destroyed the Babylonian Empire that they were already in exile under. And so now they have a new tyrant over them. Oh, what a glorious day. And, And so you can see when it says, thus says Lord to his anointed to Cyrus, there's a couple of things here. The word anointed... Now, that can mean a a kingly choosing or something, but what is the word that we often, that we've taught anointed refers to? I heard a lot of things. It means Messiah. It means Messiah. In the New Testament, in the Greek, it's translated Christos. Do you get the connection there? And so what, what Isaiah says is, thus says Yahweh to the Messiah, Christ Cyrus, And they're like, are you kidding me? Are you kidding me? That would be like in World War II coming to the Jews and saying, thus says God's anointed Hitler. Because Cyrus was no nice guy. And again, he was a a brutal king from a brutal empire. Now he had some different philosophies that, that dealt with his diplomacy. But we must not mistake that God is saying something radical here. I am going to use this evil pagan man that you hate. And just to pour it on, remember there were no chapter divisions, right? Look at the last verse of chapter 44. Who says of Cyrus, he is my shepherd. Oh great, now we're even using terminology David used. He is my shepherd, he shall fulfill my purpose. And God is shaking them out of their misery and out of their their self-pity and saying, I will use this man. 
And he's not calling him Christ. He's not saying he's perfect. In fact, several times in this, he goes out of his way to say he didn't even know God. He didn't even know God was using him at first. The focus isn't Cyrus. The focus is a God who is sovereign over all things and can use even the people that Satan is trying to use. Isn't that cool? There is no one out of the grasp of who God can use to do things for His purpose. To do things in our lives for His purpose. There is no circumstance out of the grasp of what God wants to use for His purpose. Man, I love this. It challenges me to stop looking in the mirror and start, start looking up. Thus says Yahweh to Cyrus, to his anointed, to Cyrus. And then he goes on to describe a little bit of what he's doing. Catch who is doing the action here. Whose right hand I have grasped. Right hand often represents power. And God's saying, I, I grabbed his right hand. I gave him his power. Pastor Andrew talked about this a couple of weeks ago. This is also an, uh, some terminology that might be used of, of how you would lead a child. And so God is saying, I grabbed him by the hand. I led him onto the world stage to accomplish what I'm trying to do here. Yes, I know he's pagan. I know he needs Christ or God. But I'm using him. He goes on to subdue the nations before him to loose the belts of the kings, to open doors before him that gates may not be closed. And he's saying, I am using him, but I am giving him his power. I am giving him his significance. I am guiding him with my hand. Now, Cyrus didn't always know this. In fact, Cyrus was, it seems like a guy that plays the gods a little bit. Sort of covers his bases because in um, we know uh, about Cyrus from the Cyrus Cylinder, something that they found dated back to that time. And he writes a number of things and he writes about taking over Babylon and he writes about letting the Israelites and some other countries go back to their, their land. But in that, he credits Marduk. Remember who Marduk was? Last week, the god of Babylon. So he would go in and invade a country And then he'd give some credit to their God just in case he offended their God. You cover my bases. But yet in Ezra, in Ezra chapter 1 verse 2, we read, Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, Yahweh, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth. And he has charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is Judah. And so we see God using this misguided pagan man. Oh, there's, there's so much we can get into in these verses. I will give you, um, I will go before you, level the exalted places. I will break in pieces the doors of bronze and cut through the bars of iron. That's a reference to the front gates of a city, the fortifications of a city. And God is saying, I'm the one giving you the cities. I'm going to take care of this. I will give you the treasures of darkness and the hordes in secret places that you may know that it is I, Yahweh, the God of Israel, who call you by your name. And the first, first letter there, letter A, God uses strange people or circumstances that we don't expect. But God is using them. And, and I want to be careful. I, I, I want to stay away from the terminology God can use any circumstance. And I, I'm very intentional to say God is using any circumstance. 
because can implies that he's distant and maybe intervenes whenever he feels like it. Is implies he is using whatever you put at the top of your page, whatever you're going through, he is using that right now for his glory and your good. Whether or not we see it. But isn't that encouraging? To, to, to see that there is a bigger reason for this. I don't have to know it because my God does. My God does. Now we know that Cyrus is going to come in and, and Cyrus is actually going to enable the people of Judah to go back to their land, those that want to. Unfortunately, not everyone wants to. Some have given in to idolatry and Babylon, but some still worship Yahweh. And God is going to use him to restore people. He's working his master plan. Second letter, and I want to go through the, the, the rest of the verses, grab a couple points. Letter B there, God works so that we may know him. God works so that we may know him. Verse 3 that I just read, he said, That you may know that it is I, Yahweh, the God of Israel, who call you by your name. Now, we want God to work to give us a comfortable life sometimes or to eliminate whatever circumstance we're under that we don't like. God says, one of my purposes here, guys, is so Cyrus knows who I am. I want him to have a personal experience with Yahweh and be confronted with who I am. We don't know the results of it. We don't know if Cyrus ever, ever became a believer in Yahweh, but he knew and he acknowledged in Ezra 1 that we read. And it's a reminder to us that God is using our circumstances He's using trouble. He's using frustrating things and frustrating people so that we'll be pushed to Him, so that we will know Him. Don't lose that. Don't get so mired in in what's going on that we forget to know our God better. And that sometimes in the darkest time, is when we find out who God is in the most precious ways. I've talked to so many of you and often asked the question, when do you feel like you knew God the most? Or when do you feel like you learned the most about God? Not one of you have ever listed an incredibly smooth part of your life in an answer to that question. Not one. In every case, it's, it's the dark nights of the soul. The hard times. And we can come out of it angry at God or we can come out of it saying, Oh, my Lord and my God, my Savior, tis so sweet to trust in Jesus. We have that choice. Cyrus had that choice. Personally, I don't think he chose wisely in the end of things. But I don't know. God was still using him for his plan. Let us see. God is executing his plan with his chosen in mind. And this goes back to last chapter where God is just reassuring Israel, I know you're under my discipline, but you are still my chosen. You are still my precious people. And read verse 4. For the sake of my servant Jacob, an endearing term, and Israel my chosen, for their sake I call you by your name. I name you. And he's talking to Cyrus in the second half there. I call you by your name, Cyrus. I name you, though you don't know me. That's okay. You'll be confronted with me but I'm doing this for my precious people, my chosen. Don't ever let your circumstances make you doubt that you are God's precious people, that you are chosen. If you are His, 
and adopted in the family, you are his and you are adopted for life. Nothing can change that. And he will act with his children in mind. It just won't be our plans. It won't be the way we want, but it'll be for, the, for his glory and for the greater good. Verse 5, he goes on, I am Yahweh, there is no other. Besides me, there is no God. I equip you, though you do not know me. And here is where we start to get this sequence of I am the Lord, there is no other. And so we see that God is working so that we will trust God alone. God allows difficulties sometimes, so we will trust God alone. Sometimes I'm a little thick-headed. Sometimes I have to try a lot of other things before I really trust God. Yeah, I say it, but before I really, really surrender to God in certain areas. But that's what God wants. And he says, nothing else will satisfy. And so three times here he says, I am Yahweh. Three times he says, there is no other God. He is stressing the absolute uniqueness of God. So that way we would learn this and quit going other places. And quit seeking other means of satisfaction and joy. I am God alone. In verse 6, and every verse is just rich. In verse 6, he says again what he's hoping, will this, his, what his purpose is. That people may know from the rising of the sun and from the west that there is none besides me. I am Yahweh, there is no other. And we see another principle as we, we deal with trials and frustrations. God works so that the world may know God. Now, earlier we said God works so that we can know God, but sometimes God is working just to display His glory to the world. Like the man with his disciples that was blind from birth, and they're like, well, what did he do wrong? No, he was blind so my glory could be displayed right now at this moment. God might be using you to show who he is to someone else that would never see God in any other way. Think about that. God is using Israel here. He's using their discipline, but he's using now what he's going to do with Cyrus to show to the world that he is God and he is God alone. He is not wasting circumstances. Things are not happening randomly that have no purpose. God is using it all to point back to him. The nations will know. From the rising of the sun in the east and from the west, the whole world, they will know there is no other God. We're going to come back to that later in the chapter. Because he goes on in 7 and 8 to just remind us he's sovereign over all circumstances. I form light and I create darkness. I make well-being and I create calamity. I am Yahweh who does all these things. Shower, O heavens, from above. Let the clouds rain down righteousness. Let it rain righteousness. Let the earth open up that salvation and righteousness may bear fruit. Let the earth cause them both to sprout. I, Yahweh, have created it. And he's reminding them, I am sovereign over all circumstances. Nothing has happened that is outside of my control. 
Now we know, and, and this is where we get into a tension of theology and does God cause evil? And, and, and we know as we compare Scripture with Scripture that God does not cause evil. He does not cause us to sin. But what he's saying here is he is still sovereign over all of that. If you go out and sin this afternoon and, and just do something horrible and ruin the rest of your life, God knew that and now he has a plan to use that for his glory. God is sovereign over every difficulty you and I have. Meaning He will use that and He has a plan to use that for His purposes. It is so comforting to know that God is never surprised. He's never surprised. And He's already worked out how that will work for His glory and His purposes. So that's the setup then for verses 9 through 13. And in 9 through 13, letter G there, don't fight your Creator. Don't fight your Creator. Verse 9, Woe to him who strives with him who formed him. A pot among earthen pots. Does the clay say to him who forms it, What are you making? Or your work has no handles. And it's sort of weird. It's, it's talking pots. And, and some of you on past missions trips, see in the Bible there's talking things too. Um, talking pots. And, and Isaiah says, okay, this is absurd. You're making a pot and it doesn't get a little mouth and say, why didn't you put handles on me? It doesn't know. The Creator decides what it is and, and what it should be used for. It doesn't ask, what are you making? The Creator defines that. And Isaiah is challenging them here. He's saying, I, I just showed you that God is God alone. He is over all things. So why would we even question Him? This makes no sense. If God has a perfect plan, how dare we question the circumstances that are leading to that plan? But we do. I do. And the answer is to trust and to go along with that plan. The next verse goes to childbirth as an illustration. Woe to him who says to a father, what are you begetting? Or to a woman, with what are you in labor? It, it's the baby in the hospital that was just born that says, Mom, Dad, why did you have me? What, what am I anyway? You did it all wrong. You, you shouldn't have had me now. I, the ba- Do you see how absurd that is? A little freaky too, but the the absurdity of a baby questioning that. And Isaiah is challenging them to say, when you question that God can use circumstances and that God can use Cyrus and that God is still at work, you're like the pot and the baby. Thus says the Lord, or Yahweh, the Holy One of Israel, and the one who formed him. There's, there's such a, a, a wonderful irony that he keeps reminding him. Oh, by the way, he formed you. He created you. He's over all things. Ask me of things to come. Will you compa- command me concerning my children and the works of my hands? I made the earth and created man on it. It was my hands that stretched out the heavens. And I commanded all their hosts. I have stirred him up in righteousness. And I will make all his ways level. He shall build my city and set my exiles free. And he's speaking of Cyrus here now again. He's summarizing what he's going to do. He's going to set you free. 
he's going to build Jerusalem back. Not for price or reward, but because I tell him to and he has to obey me. Doesn't it sound like Job? Where were you when I stretched out the heavens? Where were you when I created the earth? But here Isaiah comes back and God uses Isaiah to remind them, hey, my plan is pretty good here. My plan is perfect. This is how you're getting back to Jerusalem. This is how you're getting out of exile. What you're complaining about is going to be awesome. And we fight our Creator. We ask the wrong question so many times. Why do I have cancer? Why did I lose my job? Why is my son or daughter rebelling and walking away from the Lord? And instead, we should be saying, God, what are you doing through this? How can I be part of what you're doing? How can I trust you? So the bigger question is always, who is God and how will we glorify Him? You know, you, my kids are at, at almost the tween stage. Why are there chuckles from parents who have been through this? <laughs> and, you know, so we're navigating this. And, we're, and there's challenges there, aren't there, moms, dads? There's challenges. What, what do you think we're hearing sometimes? Oh, you're not fair. We've heard that a long time. <laughs> uh, that was funny. Yeah, I'm not fair. Um, what? Um, wh- why are you doing that? Or now we're hearing, you're not doing this right. You should be doing this. There. Oh, really? <laughs> Who holds your life in... No, no, um, no. <laughs> God can say that. I shouldn't say that. We question it, and, and, and when, we, when we get to that developmental stage where we're starting to reason better and think through things, yes, we start to naturally question mom and dad. Moms and dads, that's why it's so important that you engage. Not necessarily answering why, but you engage the heart and say, well, well okay, so let's talk about the heart that's making you ask this. Why, why are you struggling to trust me? Why are you struggling to trust God? And you engage the heart, and, and that's not a, a one-day answer. That's probably a 10-year answer, uh, having that conversation, because you're training them, but you're not just training them to have a happy little Johnson family. You're training them of how they're going to respond to God. Because we do the same thing with God. God, you're not doing this right. I'm getting something I don't want, and I don't like it. And Isaiah calls us back to who formed the heavens. Who created everything? Who fashioned everything? And in verse 11, God says, I'm the maker of all things. Are you going to question me? In verse 12, I created all things. In verse 13, I'm executing my plan and it's brilliant. Well, maybe he doesn't say brilliant. But I'm using Cyrus for my plan. I am working here, whether you like it or not. And it's for my glory and for your good. Even if you don't understand it. I love the quote from Ray Ortland that I put in your notes. Make room for the improbable ways of God. Make room for the improbable ways of God. The last ten verses or so of the chapter, 
Now there's a switch. And, and I view these verses as a unit, so I want to read them as a unit and just, just absorb them because now God is switching to the big picture. He's switching to the big story. And he's dealt with encouraging them to look beyond their own circumstances, see who he is. But now he's going to say, okay, this is, this is the big picture of what I'm doing. You want to be part of something significant? You want to save the puppies or the whales? How about something that's really significant? And I'm saving the world. And this is my heart. And so let me read from verse 14. Thus says the Lord, the wealth of Egypt and the merchandise of Cush and the Sabaeans, men of stature, they'll, they'll come over to you and be yours. They will follow you. They shall come over in chains and bow down to you. They will plead with you saying, Surely God is in you and there is no other, no God besides Him. And He's illustrating that the world's going to know who God is because of what He's doing. Verse 15, Truly you are a God who hides Himself, O God of Israel, the Savior, All of them are put to shame and confounded. The makers of idols go in confusion together. And he's referring to the last chapter of idolatry and the confusion that that brings. But Israel is saved by the Lord with everlasting salvation. You shall not be put to shame or confounded to all eternity. God will save. For thus says the Lord who created the heavens, He is God. I love that in, in, in parentheses there. In case we don't get why he's been talking about the, he's the creator, he's God who formed heaven and made it. Oh, oh, by the way, he established it. He did not create it empty. He formed it to be inhabited. I am Yahweh. There is no other. And we see that phrase again. I did not speak in secret. In a land of darkness, I did not say to the offspring of Jacob, seek me in vain. I, the Lord, speak the truth. I declare what is right. Assemble yourselves and come. Draw near together, you survivors of the nations. They have no knowledge who carry about their wooden idols and keep on praying to a God that cannot save. And he's referring to the idolatry again. Last week it was the the silliness of burning half for, for warmth and then worshiping the other half. Now he's saying, oh, by the way, you're carrying your idol around in your pocket? That's not a very strong God. It just isn't. And he's pointing out the absurdity of idolatry in light of there is one God who created everything. Declare and present your case. Let them take counsel together. Who told this long ago? Who declared it of old? Was it not I, the Lord? And there is no other God besides me, a righteous God and a Savior. There is none beside me. And here he uses the prophecy as an example. I told you what would happen. In fact, I told you 150 years ago that his name would be Cyrus. Trust me, no other God can do this. Nothing else you worship can do this because they're not God. And the heart here. Turn to me and be saved, all the ends of the earth. For I am God and there is no other. By myself I have sworn, from my mouth has gone out in righteousness a word that shall not return. To me every knee shall bow, every tongue shall swear allegiance. Only in the Lord it shall be said of me, our righteousness and strength to him shall come, to to him shall come and be ashamed all who were incensed against him. In the Lord all the offspring of Israel 
shall be justified and show glory. And what's happening here is that the bigger picture here is that we are part of His story to His glory. And yes, all the blanks of your major points were His today. Think about why. We are part of His story to His glory. What is His story? He alone is God in these verses. He alone offers rescue and salvation to a rebellious creation. And His heart there is for all to turn to Him. That all would be saved. And at the end, He acknowledges, not all will be. Only the ones that come to Me will be saved. But it's an offer to everyone. And today, this is still His heart for the world. This is why we, sh- we, we share with Mario and Lancey and partner because we want to see Portugal reached. This is why they pray for us. I don't know if you think about that. They pray for us because we want Garden Grove reached and Orange County reached. Not so we build bigger churches, but so there's more that bring glory to God. There's more that are saved and more that are worshiping God. I'll leave you with this thought. At the end there, it says for my, in verse 23, By myself I have sworn, from my mouth has gone out in righteousness a word that shall not return. To me every knee shall bow, and every tongue shall swear allegiance. We see that repeated in Philippians 2, 9 through 11. We see it repeated in Romans. Every knee will bow. Speaking of submitting to God. Every tongue will confess. Speaking of giving Him glory. The question is how? Not every tongue and every knee will do that from heaven. Some will give glory to God because they refuse to follow God. And God will use all circumstances for His glory. They refuse to follow God. And so through discipline and punishment in hell, they end up showing His righteousness. They end up showing His justice. And they are submitting to God at that point. And they are declaring His glory. And some who have accepted Christ will be in heaven singing praises to God and saying, Holy, holy, holy. And with our mouth, we'll be declaring praise. The question that I challenge us with today, if there's anyone here that has never accepted Christ, which, which side will you be on giving glory to God? You will submit to God. You will give glory to God because there is only one God and nothing else can compare to Him. But will you do it willingly and joyfully or through God's discipline? Follow Jesus today. Repent and say, God, I follow you because your desire is to be in relationship with me. If you've never done that before, find me today. I'll I'll hang out up here for a little bit. Find me. Let's talk. Let's deal with this today because I want you in heaven next to me singing holy, holy, holy. More voices in the choir just makes it sound better. That's our heart. That's God's heart. Will you bow your heads with me for just a moment? Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, 
God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Amen. That's our prayer.